Uh, the text we'll look at tonight is uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It's Philippians 2. Um, and I want us to consider the mind um, of Good Friday. The mind of Good Friday. You know, um, how we think um, affects what we do. How we think reveals what we believe. Have this mind among yourselves, writes Paul, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind. We'll look at that in just a little while. William Temple, Archbishop of England in the early to mid-1900s, said this, quote, When we open our eyes as babies, we see the world stretching out around us. We are in the middle of it. I am the center of the world I see. Where the horizon is depends on where I stand. If I move, the whole horizon moves. Some things hurt us. We hope that they will not happen again. We call them bad. Some things please us. We hope they will happen again. We call them good. Our standard of value is the way the things affect ourselves. End of quote. In other words, our natural disposition is not towards selflessness, but selfishness. And Good Friday helps us um, to consider many things, and among them is, is a new frame of mind. A new frame of mind for the believer. Even as Christians, believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, we must recalibrate. We must uh, reset. We must punch, you know, control, alt, delete regularly. And Good Friday is a good day to do that. Because we're oftentimes no different than the people of Jerusalem when Jesus entered in on Palm Sunday. Jesus entered in on Palm Sunday, and swarms of people from all over the Roman world, traveling from afar to play their liturgical role for their time, to offer up sacrifices according to the law, they hailed him king. But they had fundamentally misinterpreted his kingdom, his ways in the ways he works. Listen to Matthew 21. It says, Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees, and they spread them out on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. 
the million and a half or so people. The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. That was the high point, friends. That was the pinnacle of Christ's ministry from an outward, man-centered perspective. Because the horizon could only be seen from where they were standing. They praise him. They hail him. They receive him as king. They lay down their cloaks. They lay down palm branches. So from a public perspective, this was the apex of Jesus' ministry in their eyes. Thinking this is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He's here to restore Israel to to her former glory. And as you well know, they were expecting a great militia king. Here he is, to meet their expectations and to meet their dreams, to make them happen. They're ready for glory right here. But they're missing the crucial part of the puzzle, the cross. The cross. You know, even when we know better living this side of the cross, okay, here we are, 2,000 years later, we live this side of the cross, we still have a hard time grasping this. Expecting glory. I'm often from the time we become a believer, from the time that God in his grace lifts the veil, from the moment he, he, he re- replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, we think that the Christian life is this steady upward flow a continual ascent in God helping us to complete our plans. Meeting our expectations. Reaching glory down here. Rather than seeing that we're part of completing his plans. See, the Lord was clear throughout his ministry. Have we not heard this in our study of Matthew thus far? Jesus said the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of evil men. He must suffer. He must die. And he must rise the third day. And the must was according to the Old Testament prophecies. He must. Because the scriptures declare he must. But Jesus' mind was much different than the crowd, right? In the midst of it all. In the midst of the bustle, the crowds, the noise, the hails, he understood what was happening in a way that was very different from the crowd. And loving them so much, he had to defy their expectations. Loving them so much, he had to defy their expectations. Do we see things that way? Do we have the mind of Christ? He had to not be the conquering political king they expected. So Philippians 2 opens up for us the mind of Christ who rode towards his murder 
not away from it. Verses five through eight. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now notice this text is written with a command, right? Have this mind. This was originally believed to be a, a, a song or a hymn. But here Paul's dealing with a problem of rivalry, which inevitably leads to disunity. You show me a church that has disunity in it, and I'll show you a church that has rivalry within. They go hand in hand. But notice, whenever Paul gives a command throughout his epistles, it's always connected with that which Christ has done. Right? It's always connected with the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's always linked to the gospel message. So let's back up and let's look at verses 1 through 4. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So his focus is unity within the church, having the same mind, okay, expressing itself and serving, not from a place of rivalry where there's contention or competition. And notice, not from the place of conceit, pride, and, and self-importance. But, he says, use whatever the Lord has given you, most specifically, whatever spiritual gifts you have, use them especially for the benefit of others. Contrary to, contrary to our disposition of seeing the horizon is depending upon wherever we're standing. Amen? You know, Phillips Brooks once said, the true way to be humble is not to stoop until you're smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you what the real smallness of your greatness is. End quote. See, Brooks is saying, you know, go ahead and stretch out. Go ahead and stand up against the wall. Go ahead and put lifts in your shoes if you want. Go ahead, be an inch or two taller than you are, but measure yourself not against another to whom you can look and say, probably rightly so, you know, I'm smarter than her. Or I work harder than he does. 
or I give more than they do. He's saying, measure yourself up against a greatness that will show the smallness of your greatness. If you want to measure yourself, do that. And then you'll be ready for humility. But not until then. So Paul says, how we typically think, again, how we typically think needs to change at a foundational level. And it takes place as we revisit the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he does right here. And notice the first step into the valley of humiliation is that eternal God becomes a man. Have this mind among yourselves, verse 5. Which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. First and foremost, beloved, Jesus pre-existed before he ever entered this world. Now, this is very important because heretics from day one until this day say that the idea of Jesus' divinity was an evolutionary idea. Indeed, they say he was a very important person and he had a very a lot of very helpful things to say. You know, if you want to call him a guru, he's probably the greatest guru ever. So they say. But he wasn't God. And they argue that, you know, over time, some, some people begin to gather. They began to gather um, so, some, some uh, Greek um, Herculean ideas together. You know, Hercules, part man, part God. And applied them to Jesus to make him more universally acceptable or accessible. So it's really just a residual myth. That's absurdity. Jesus referred, why did they pick up stones to stone him? Because he declared to be equal with God. He declared to be the son of God, which is to declare equality with God. He, he declared, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. So Paul here ascribes to Jesus preexistence and equality with God. See, this is the one who was in the loftiest position who, who, as Calvin put it, condescended to us. Verse 6, who, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the, the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Notice when Paul says he was in the form of God, he uses a very important word. It's the Greek word morphe. You know, we'll talk about, say, you know, the morphology of a word, the morphology of something, the, morpholo- the morphology of a word and where the particular ling- linguistic shape of the word takes form, takes shape over time. Now, Paul doesn't say here he's in the form of God as though God were the template and then Jesus has to be conformed to the template. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that he is in form God. 
in form, he is God. The form that belongs to him is the form that belongs to God the Father. What did Jesus say to his disciples? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For I and the Father are one. We are the same, equal in essence and nature, as is God the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're equal in essence and nature. So there's a complete correspondence between all that God is and all that Jesus, the Christ, is. In the form of God. So the Father appoints him to this dreadful task. And notice that the Son, he condescends to take on our, our, the wrath of God in our place. And the Son does not clutch at deity, not something to be grasped. He doesn't clutch at deity as though somehow in fear he might lose his essential unity with the Father as the Son. He didn't do that. Unlike the first Adam, Jesus is the second Adam, unlike the first Adam who reached out to grasp the forbidden fruit from his wife who bought the lie of the serpent that says, surely you won't die. God knows the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Not the last Adam, but he, verse 7, made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. Kanao, or you know the noun kenosis, the great kenosis. He emptied himself. In other words, down comes deity into humanity. Deity comes down into humanity. He emptied himself, not of deity, beloved, Don't ever make the mistake that Jesus emptied himself of his deity. He emptied himself of his accessibility, that is, of his divine prerogatives. He was always God, always man. For instance, God is omnipresent. Amen? That means God is everywhere all the time. Jesus, when he condescended and and took on a human body, in that body, he was limited to one zip code at a time. Amen? One place at a time. God is omniscient. He knows all things. But even Jesus, in his time of humanity, did not know the time of his glorious second coming. Don't think he's up there now and he doesn't know. Oh, he knows. God is immutable. That is, God does not change. God cannot change. Jesus condescended into a human body, and he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Always God, never yielding up his deity. Only his divine prerogatives. He emptied himself. fully dependent upon the leading of the Holy Spirit. The second person was dependent upon being led by the third person of the Godhead, the Son led by the Spirit. So here he enters the state of humanity. He became a man, but more than that, notice, he was found, notice, he was found in the morphe, there's the word again, in the morphe, the form of a 
The word is servant. You know what the real, the word, the original word is? Doulos, slave. The doulos, a slave, in the form of a slave. So verse seven, he made himself nothing. Literally, he emptied himself. How? Paul says, he did it very literally, in likeness as a man becoming, in likeness as a man becoming, the form of a slave taking. God did that. Notice, he does not subtract his divine nature. He does not subtract his divine nature. He adds human nature. God. He doesn't divest himself of deity. He adds slavery. Let this mind be among yourselves. He made himself nothing, literally. He emptied himself, again, very literally, the form of a slave taking. He did it in the likeness of man becoming. He emptied himself. And then in verse 8, B, being found in human form, he humbled himself. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. You think about, think about Mary holding the baby Jesus in her arms, in her arms, helpless, dependent, vulnerable, the eternal God, eternal God, nothing was made that was made without him. He spoke and the universe leapt into existence. He holds everything together by the word of his mouth. The, the eternal God, at the same moment, he nurses at the breast of Mary. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. That, that's staggering. The one who humbled himself regularly spoke about what? Humility. What did Jesus say? If you go into a banquet, forget about presumption. Don't take the best seats. Don't sit up front and soon be humiliated and be asked to sit in the back. You know, take the place where you can't see so well. Humble yourself, says the one who humbled himself. He taught about leastness and lastness in the kingdom. You want to be great? Become the servant of all. Even his own humility distinguished himself from the pride-centered, egotistical religious leaders of the day. The Pharisees. Scribes. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Think about all the great preachers. Thinking about this, I think about all the great preachers and all the great sermons I've read about the Sermon on the Mount. Yet there's only one who ever flawlessly modeled it is Jesus. He's the one that's he's the only one who's ever ever lived out his sermon perfectly. The only one. The one who came not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even, key word, even death on a cross. Crucifixion, 
Crucifixion was a form of execution reserved for the worst of the worst criminals. It was against the law for a Roman citizen to be crucified. The Jews, they regarded anyone who was crucified as being cursed of God. Cursed as anyone who hangs upon a tree. So every last shred of dignity was torn from the Lord who humbled himself when we read even death on the cross. Every shred of dignity, naked, beaten, battered, spit on, mocked, ripped open, his flesh ripped open on a cross. He's nailed. I mean, any other death, stoning, you name it, you might retain some thread of dignity and worthiness in the eyes of the world, but not crucifixion. Not crucifixion. And this is the death he chose. The cross was the focal point of his life. He sent his face as they flint towards Jerusalem, where the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of evil men. He must be crucified. He must rise the third day. He must raise up again because the scriptures declare. So deity, notice, comes down. Deity comes down, not just into humanity, not only into slavery and servitude, but into death, unspeakable death, unspeakable suffering, shameful, accursed death, crucifixion. This is the death that proclaims This one bears the condemnation both of God and man. Condemned by a man, crushed by the Father. Deity comes down. Deity condescends into death on a cross. Let this mind be in you, in Christ Jesus. Nothing was more scandalous in this day, than death on the cross. Nothing. So willing as he was to obey the darkest providence of God there has ever been or ever will be. The darkest providence of God was this day right here, according to God's plan. According to his sovereign will, according to his sovereign preordained plan, carried out according to his providence on time. It was no accident, friends. This nonsense you hear in the History Channel, Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. That's why he came. I mean, he didn't want to go. What do you mean it was a surprise? (coughs) Foolish nonsense. Let this mind be in you. See, this is how we can serve not only with the same mind, without rivalry and conceit within the body of Christ, the gathering of the saints, those redeemed, blood-bought, purchased. But also, it will help us to to look out at the world, to look at the pain, to, to look at the difficulty, to look at the torment, to look at all the sin, look at all the rebellion, and still, by his grace, love as he loved, and to see and react as he did. Amen? And you can't get there on your own. 
You can't just pull up your bootstraps and just do this. Just let's just be more like Jesus. Right? Because our natural disposition only sees the horizon from where we stand right here, right now. So the more, that is, those who are in Christ look beyond ourselves, the horizon broadens out, doesn't it? It just widens out. It's just, it's just not from where I stand, it moves. I now have a biblical worldview, and I see through the divine eyes of the Lord as the scriptures declare. Let this mind be in you. So you can't, you can't see very far if you're constantly looking inside. You'll get trapped. That's a trap. Oh, let me look within. Oh, good luck. Let me try to discover why I am like I am. Let me, let me help you. Uh, it's called selfishness. Self-pity, self-loathing, self-absorption. That's a miserable place to be. He says, let this mind be in you. Not that mind, this mind. There's one pastor who, pastor, he tells the story, um, who in his younger years, he was pretty transparent, he admitted uh, that he thought that wanting to cure, he wanted a cure for his current problems, and to get that cure, he figured at that time, if I could just go back to my past far enough and, and discover the locus of the problem, the origin of the problem, he, he thought, he admits, I, I thought that I could get better, you know, discover, discover what happened to you were in, when, when you were three so that when you're 30, you can, you can experience healing. First, you know, you have to discover some traumatic stress point in your life. Now, he admits at the time, he went to a, a secular psychologist, but the guy was brilliant, and this was the counselor's response. He said, the problem with that is it won't cure you. All it will ever do is make you a far more well-informed neurotic. <laughs> Don't go in. Go out. The gospel, as we'll be reminded Sunday, comes down to us. Have this mind. The only way we can have this mind is to bow down and repent. If you've never bowed down in repentance before the living God to call on him as Lord and Savior, that's who he is. Acknowledge him as who he is and repent before him. Change your crazy thinking and bow down to him. You will go to hell. That's what he bore on the cross. Hell. Entrust yourself to him and you'll be set free from the punishment due. Now, as Christians, we have to come to this place regularly, that is this place of repentance, not to earn anything. It's already been accomplished. It's done. Let this mind be in you. So anytime um, any untrue, imaginary, destructive view rises up that causes me to think I am at the center of everything, that thinking must die. Let this mind be in you, the one who came and humbled himself and died. That thinking has to die. 
So which means we need not only Christ as our model, we need Christ to actually deliver us. We need deliverance. We need the effect of Christ. We need to be rescued once and for all and forever. Yes, amen. But also, for me, daily. Daily. Rescue, Lord, my thinking. Rescue my mind. I'm way out. Let this mind be in you. So, Paul, when he says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, what he's really saying, bear the resemblance of the last Adam. Bear the resemblance of the last Adam. So question, which Adam do you look like? Which Adam, which likeness do you bear? The likeness of the first Adam or the last Adam? Is your mindset earthly, like the one who plunged all of us into sin and misery? That Adam? Because he was trying to be like God. Or are you in the second Adam, and in him you're being made more like him, you're being sanctified, right, in Christ, who did not, notice, count equality with God a thing to be grasped, though he is God. That's humility. Let this mind be in you. Because you're in Christ, amen? So there's great, two great destinies in life. If you're only in the first Adam, you'll bear the wrath of God. If you're in the second Adam, you can be assured that he bore it on your behalf. That's what Good Friday is. That's why it's so good. This is what he came to do. He humbled himself to be in and bear the likeness of only the first Adam. You're facing facing death and judgment. To be in and bear the likeness of the second Adam as you're being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, uh, the one who worked to save sinners, you'll realize that you're a purchased, pardoned possession of his. Therefore, you can have this mind. So this is a good day to recalibrate for all of us. The one who was the, the one who held the most lofty position, God condescended in a way that was scandalous, shocking, deeply humiliating, but forever freeing for all who are in him. This is why Good Friday is so good. See, he became the servant of the Lord, Isaiah 53. He became the suffering servant. He is the redeemer of God's elect by whose stripes we are healed. We're talking about spiritual healing there, by the way, primarily spiritual healing. There's drugstores in Africa called by his stripes pharmacy. (laughs) Yes. Therefore, verse 9, therefore, the one who came out, deity came down, deity came down, took on human form, took on slavehood, servitude, 
humility, death, dying. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, friends, his humility resulted in glory, and so does yours. Glory's already guaranteed. Now, we bear a cross, carry the cross. Amen. Now, we get tastes of it, especially when we gather together. We get tastes of it. He's the glorified lamb. You're in him, you'll share in his glory, guaranteed. So therefore, let's recalibrate today, and may we have, amen, the mind of Christ. Father, we do thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your love and your mercy, your grace and your glory, and because we're in Christ, we'll not only share it, but we'll actually rule and reign with him. It's beyond comprehension, at least for now. So help us, we do pray, to bear the resemblance of the last Adam who humbled himself, who gave himself, and help us to see not the horizon from where we stand, but from where you stand on the throne of grace. In Christ's name, amen.